describe the actions of geologists as they go into the cave to explore the rock formations. And so you can see that I've come all prepared to go spelunking today with my headlamp. And the reason for that is that this morning we're going to be examining two caves. Did you know that God often does his best work in a cave? If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 24. The book of Luke is the third book in the New Testament. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And I'm going to read the first eight verses here. And as I do this, I want to remind you that this is the word of the Lord. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in the Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. We're talking about the resurrection today. And I believe this kind of transformative power that changed history forever in a way that nothing else in history has ever changed it is at the heart of what every single human being needs. And life has a way of reminding us of that. You know, we all have dreams, we have thoughts, we have plans. And they're quite good, typically. And it's good to pursue those things, to go hard after them. We want to do that in life. We don't want to just kind of sit around and hope that it might happen. But in the end, we don't end up living every one of them out. And it's because, for any number of reasons, but one of them might be because I lack the power. And frankly, that's just what the human condition can be. But then as a matter of history, historical fact, you have this little group of people that are wandering around with Jesus all throughout the nation of modern-day Israel and on the other side of the Jordan River in modern-day Jordan. And they've been following him around for about three years or so. And they're kind of a ragged bunch. When you would look at this bunch of people, this leadership team that he's developing, the Bible calls them disciples, they don't look like they have a lot of potential. These are not the kind of people you would typically pick for your leadership team. And here we are drawing to the end of the three years, and at the moment they thought was going to be their greatest triumph, everything gets destroyed. Their leader has been arrested They've abandoned him in his hour of need. They've run for their lives, abandoning him to his fate. 
They know that he has been falsely accused, that people have been paid off to lie about him, to manufacture evidence that wasn't there, that the authorities of that day have conspired together and exerted political pressure on the governor, the Roman governor of the nation, and they make sure that Jesus is murdered. And when they see this happen, they're thinking, we are done. It is game over. And it's just a matter of time until they come for us and do the same thing. And it's at that moment that something historical happened. And this historical happening created a movement. And this movement changed, as I said, history forever. It gripped these people with a conviction that everything had changed and now they had power. And the fact of the matter was that Jesus had conquered death. The power of God did this. <laughs> and this is greater than the biggest enemies we will ever face in life. Everything in life revolves back to death. All that is wrong in this world is expressed through death, both spiritually and physically. All of our sin that things flow back to, all of the injustices of this world, of which there are many, are dealt with by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it all ties back to death. And Jesus defeating death ultimately defeats it all. And that power is now available to every person who's a follower of Christ, right from God. If you read in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 1, it says his incomparably great power is available for those who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. I believe with all my heart that power is the only hope for the human race. Now, we do lots of good things, but ultimately the only hope for the human race is that power. And frankly, it's available for you, available for every person in this room, available for every person in this world that would receive it. And so I just want to give you a heads up that later in this service, I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive it. And so I invite you, if that intrigues you at all, to be listening to what I have to say, evaluating what the Bible is saying, and say, is this for me? And I invite you to make an informed decision on whether this is something you might want. And I'm going to do this by illustration through a Bible story, a true Bible story, historical story again, that will then lead us back to the resurrection. So David is a famous person in history, a person that was born in the Old Testament era. And as a young boy, as a young teenager, he had incredible gifts. It was obvious to the people around him. He had great courage. He had great potential. And one day, the prophet, the leading prophet in the nation of Israel, a guy named Samuel, went and found him. And when he had found him, he said to David, you have found favor with God. And he did this unique thing that they rarely did. He anointed him with oil, and he poured oil over his head that ran all the way down his head, 
down through his hair, over his face, and all cascaded down onto his clothes. And this anointing suggested to David and said to David that God had incredible things in store for him. And then Samuel told him what all those things were going to be. And quite honestly, if you know the story of David at all, you know it went just like that for him for a long time. A long time. He ended up, because of his great potential, being tapped to come and serve in the king's court. King Saul saw him as an up-and-comer. And we're told in the Bible that David had great musical skills. He wrote many songs, and many of them are in the scriptures. And King Saul looked at David and said, you're my favorite musician. I love it when you come and play in my court. As he was hanging out in the court and serving in the court, he began to become best friends with one of the king's sons, a guy named Jonathan. As he got a little bit older, one of the king's daughters was selected for him to marry, which was an incredible honor that very, obviously very few people got. There were times when other nations tried to come and crush the Israelites, and David would go out into battle as a young, young man. And he was so successful in defending the nation that he was even more successful than King Saul was, who had the best armor and the best training. And when the people saw what David was doing in battle, they would compose songs about him and write about how he saved them and about his courage and the things that he had done. In the, in the vernacular, we would look at a guy like this and we would say, this guy has got it going on. This guy is incredible. And David, it was like everything he touched in life just turned to gold. It was like he had the Midas touch. And then a funny thing happened to him on the way to the top. Everything came crashing down. And I do mean everything. It all fell apart. It was all stripped away. Because he was so successful. And the songs they were singing about him is that he was surpassing by a good measure what King Saul was doing. And King Saul was a jealous type. And he didn't like this. And he became angry with David and he wanted to kill him. One time he took a javelin in his court and threw it and tried to pin him against the wall. And David jumped out of the way. And so David had to run for his life as the king decided to kill him. And in doing this, he lost his job, he lost his income, he lost his security. And there are some of you that are here this morning that know exactly what that's like. While he was running for his life, he ended up losing his marriage because Saul was so jealous of him that he took his daughter back from David and gave her to another man. That's how much he despised David. What a horrible thing to do. He loses his marriage. He loses his family. He loses his position. Now he's pretty upset by this, like anybody would be, and so he tries to go and find his mentor, the person that's built into his life, the leading prophet of the entire nation, Samuel, and he's going to talk to Samuel about what's going on and what can I do about this, and he's on his way to meet Samuel. The king's soldiers come after him, and he has to run for his life again, and as he's running for his life, Samuel dies, and so he can't even talk to his mentor 
and get some encouragement from him. He tries to talk to his best friend, Jonathan. But of course, Jonathan is sort of put between a rock and a hard place. Do I choose my best friend or my dad, the king? And so that's totally awkward, and that doesn't work. Finally, his life is in so much danger, he has to run from Israel. And so he loses his home, he loses his culture, he loses his language, he loses it all. And I want you to just think about that for a minute with me. Where does he run? He runs as a refugee, so he understands what it's like to be a refugee. He runs as a refugee to Gath. Now, Gath is the hometown of someone from his past, someone he met when he was a young boy, a young teenager, a great big giant of a man on what we would probably consider to be on steroids. And there was a day in the life of the history of Israel where the Philistines were lined in battle up against the Israelites, and they sent out their champion, a man named Goliath, to fight the champion of the Israelites. And everybody was scared spitless of this guy because he was a monster huge dude. Nobody would go fight him. And God moved David, a young teenage boy, to go out and face this guy in battle, a guy from the hometown of Gath. And he went out with five smooth stones and a slingshot, nailed him right in the head, I presume, and then took Goliath's sword and chopped off his head and won the victory. The place where David goes, because it's the only place he can think of to go to be safe, is the hometown of Goliath, Gad. And he's so desperate for help, he goes there. He goes to his enemies, the Philistines, that he has met in battle many times. And what he does is he pretends to be insane, hoping they'll take pity on him. And they say, no way. And they punt him through the goalposts of life and kick him out. And after all of this, David ends up in a cave. The guy that used to live in the palace the guy with power, with fame, with more potential than anybody else in the entire nation. Has no home, no friends, no job, no wife, no mentor. He's running for his life, and he ends up living in a cave. I've been in a lot of caves in Israel and Jordan, explored around in them. And the pictures you're seeing flashing on the screen behind you is typical of what many of the caves look like over there. Not exactly... Well, let those, let's get those caves up there. That's right. You'll see what they look like. The caves in Israel are not exactly typically the Taj Mahal. It's not like living in the palace. He goes from living in the palace to living in a cave. And you might call one of these caves a cave for the doomed. A cave is where we end up when all of our supports in life and all our scaffolding that we've built in life gets taken away. The cave is where we go for dreams to die. And it may be that this morning, because of a relationship, because of a desertion, because of a death, because of a divorce, because of a lost job, because of a series of bad decisions, I don't know what, that might be where some of your dreams have gone. 
You know, in my experience, nobody in life plans on ending up in a cave. Nobody thinks, my goal in life is to have everything stripped away, all the scaffolding, all the supports in life, all the dreams come crashing down so that I can end up (coughs) living in a cave rather than in the palace or some version of that. In fact, I think if you study the culture, particularly in North America, our culture in North America is primarily based on cave avoidance. And we go to great lengths to avoid the cave. Here's a pill. Avoid the cave. But the fact is, some of us have been in the cave for any number of reasons, for one degree or another. Maybe it's not so much, maybe it's quite a bit. Some of us have been in the cave. Some of us are here this morning, and frankly, we're in the cave right now. And some of us will go there someday to one degree or another. And I'm going to suggest that perhaps the hardest part about being in the cave is we begin to wonder if God has forgotten about us. And we begin to wonder, are you even there, God? And we begin to wonder if, you know, maybe you're busy over in the Middle East doing something over there, And you've forgotten about little old me here in Lethbridge. See, I believe with all my heart that the cave is where God often does his best work. He molds us and he shapes us when we are willing. And it's often the fact of the matter that we have to come to the end of ourselves before we're willing to admit we need help and we look outside ourselves for someone to give us hope. And I don't completely understand it, but it seems like when all is taken away and there's only God, it's only then that we know that God is enough and that's truly when he shines the brightest. You know, if I went around the room and I began to ask you, when are the times in your life where... There's been sort of the most strategic and most significant steps forward in terms of a spiritual life. The usual answer will be in the tough times, in the cave times of life. If you know the story at all, you know that David spent about 10 years of his life living in the cave under threat of death. And during that time, it's very interesting, if you keep reading the story, during that time, a group of people coalesced around him, gathered around him, because he was a leader. In fact, he wasn't just a leader, he's a leader of leaders. And so people are drawn to him. But the crowd that's drawn to him are a very interesting crowd. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2, it says, all of those who were in distress or in debt or discontented, gathered around David, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. That sounds like an incredibly promising crew. Imagine gathering that crew around you. All the people that are discontent, all the people that are disillusioned with light, all the people that are in debt said, here's a leader, let's gather around him. So some of them are married, some of them have kids, Some of them end up getting married and having kids. And one day, David leads his troop off into battle. 
And while he's gone with the guys, some marauders come in and they grab all the wives and all the children and every belonging. And when they come back to their cave camp, all that's left is some smoldering fires. And it says in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 4, that David, it says, so David and his men, when they come back, David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. These guys are sobbing. Everything, and there's no insurance back then, everything they have in life is gone. And they are sobbing so much and crying so much that they are collapsing to the ground in exhaustion. And then two verses later in verse 6, it says, Then David was greatly distressed because the men were talking about stoning him to death. Let me ask you, have you ever had a really bad day at work? Like, I mean a bad day at work. David was having a bad day at work. And it's at this moment that I think one of the most amazing verses in the Bible appears. Because in verse 6, it says this, but David found strength in the Lord his God. See, David was not strengthened by his resilience. He was an incredibly resilient guy. If you know his life at all, they're taking shots at him from every angle. Incredibly resilient. He did not find strength in his brilliance. He was an incredibly brilliant, genius-level individual. You can see it in his writings. He wrote a number of things in the scripture. He was not finding strength in his own capacity. Gifted up the wazoo, a leader among leaders. He was not finding strength in his courage. He would face hundreds of people in battle and prevail. No, he found his strength in the Lord, his God. And I would argue that at that moment, David passed from death to life. Because it was not about David at all in the cave. It was all about David falling into the arms of of God. And see, when difficult things or cave-like environments come into our life, we make a choice. We either shake our fist at God or we fall into his arms. If you know the story of David, his life, he had an incredible life uh, subsequent to this. He had some great highs. He had incredible lows. He had incredible victories. He made tragic incredibly bad mistakes in his life and bad choices in his life. And I'm just guessing during all those times, when he became the king of Israel later, the greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel, I would imagine there were many times he looked back and he remembered the cave. Have you had a cave experience? Are you trying to do the cave experience in your own strength? Are we living with the false hope, false hope, that I'm strong enough to handle it all by myself in the cave? You see, caves are why God sent Jesus. That's one of the meta stories of this book. Caves 
are why Jesus came. It's very interesting because in a very parallel fashion, in the life of Jesus for a long time, he lived to be 33 years of age approximately. In the life of Jesus, it was so much like David in the early days. Everything he did touched, turned to gold. Everything he touched turned to gold. When he would teach, people were mesmerized. There had never been a teacher like Jesus in all of history. The most intelligent people in that society, the top 1% of the 1%, hated this guy. And they wanted to do him in. And they would spend time plotting. How can we trick him into saying something we can use against him? They would come and they would challenge him in public. And his answer would be so profound that their mouths would be left hanging open and they'd just walk away with nothing to say. And everybody saw there was something incredible about this guy. People would come from all over Israel. They would walk for days to hear this guy. And tens upon tens of thousands of people would sit for long periods of time mesmerized by what this guy taught. They would come when they were in debt. They would come when they were sick. They would come when they were discouraged. He would supernaturally heal them. He would love them. And he had it it going on. And when he touched something, it turned to gold. And then one day, he went up to Jerusalem. And he entered the city a week ago today. And when he came into the city, wow, the crowd went wild. We're going to make you king. You're the Messiah. We're waving these palm branches at you. You're a rock star, Jesus. Where do I sign up to become a member of your team? We want you to be our political king. You're going to lead us in battle against the Roman oppressor. And we're going to crush them in battle. And then Israel will become the preeminent nation in all of the world. This is what we've been looking forward to all through the Old Testament era. See, the thing is, Jesus did come as the king. He came as the king of kings. But he didn't come as a political king. He came as the servant king. The king that wore a towel and washed the feet of his disciples, the king who would come to save them. But when they found that out about him, they turned on him in an instance. And just like David, he lost everything. He lost his position as a teacher. He lost his safety. He lost his friends. When they showed up in the middle of the night to arrest him, all his friends bolted on him and deserted him and ran and saved themselves. They arrested him. They took him through a series of mock trials all through the night. They never would have trials at night. You knew these guys were conspiring illegally against him to have him killed. They paid people off to lie about him. And then they had his body ripped to shreds. So much so, he would not have been recognizable as a human being and as a man ripped to shreds. 
And then they nailed him on a cross. And then as God, the spirit-filled God-man, this is what Bible teaches, the spirit-filled God-man, as a sinless, perfect man, he had all of our sin, and let's get real personal here, he had all of the sin of Scott and all of the sin of you, insert your name there, laid on him, and he died for Scott, and he died for you. And it was the most unjust death the world has ever known. And when he died, what did they do? They took his body down off the cross and they put it in a cave. I've been in the locations. There's several of them, two or three disputed locations of where that cave was. I've been in those. I remind you that our God does some of his best work in the cave. The cave is where God goes to resurrect dead stuff. And as a matter of history and historical fact, something happened that day. Now, let me just say to you very clearly that if you become a follower of Jesus, or you're a follower of Jesus already, that doesn't mean life's going to be all coming up roses, that all your problems will evaporate. In fact, in many ways, when you're a legitimate follower of Jesus, your, your problems tend to grow. And it's tough to be a follower of Jesus. But those problems and those issues, when you're really following the biblical Jesus, they will now be met with a joy never available in your life up until that point. They will be met with supernatural power never before available for you in life. And that's because of the work of the resurrected Christ in the cave. And so today we, we come to a place of decision, which I referenced earlier in this little talk. And I'm going to ask you these questions. Am I going to stay in the cave? You know, am I going to try to live in the cave in my own strength and perhaps just spend my time complaining about how unfair my cave situation is? Some people make that decision in life and they live depleted lives because of it. And then there are some people that are outwardly successful, that our culture would look at and they would say, there's a successful woman, a successful man for these reasons, ding, 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 ding. But in the long-term analysis of their life over a lifespan, if they're doing it all in their own strength, their souls will begin to wither and die. And then there's some people who have the courage to kneel down in the cave and say, God, I don't want to do life in my strength alone anymore. I want a life that I cannot live in my own strength. And I ask that the Jesus who was resurrected with power would give me a fresh start, would give me a do-over, would make me a new creation, the Bible says, in Christ. That he would be the one to forgive my sins, to wipe my slate clean. 
because of what he did on the cross. And I understand he's extended that offer. The Bible calls it grace. Extended that offer to whoever would receive it. And I, I ask that not only would he be the forgiver of my sins, but also the one with whom I have an ongoing, day-by-day, life-changing relationship for every day I live on this earth and then for all of eternity. And I would ask that he would be the leader of my life, the Lord of my life, the agenda setter of my life, the guide of my life, whatever term you want to use. And I'm going to, I don't even totally get what this means, but I fully surrender to this and I am ready to go all in. God is not interested in anything less than that. He's only interested in an all-in commitment. And then I will seek with God's help, with the power of the Spirit, which is supernatural in nature, that whatever I do in life, I will seek to arrange my life in a way that stays in deep connection with Him and allow Him to re- re- rearrange my values in light of biblical values. And for the rest of my life on earth, I'll follow Him and forevermore in the world to come. This is the offer He makes to you today. And you can make that decision today, and in a moment I'm going to invite you to do that. Now understand again, this does not mean you'll have no problems. In fact, I'm going to say again, when you really live biblically, it often makes life harder. But you will find the divinic that we talked about kind of strength that God offers because you will know for the first time in your life the power of forgiveness. You will know a God that completely cleanses you and will never bring up your past deeds again. When he forgives you, it says in Bible, he removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. Think about how sweet that is. The power of forgiveness. You will know the power of being loved by someone, the Bible says, that will never leave you nor forsake you. He's never too busy doing something else. It may seem that way, but he never is. You will know the power to have meaning in life that has eternity stamped on it, the power to grow, the power that at the end of a very quick life of 70, 80, 90 years, whatever it is, it's an incredibly short span in the basis of human history. At the end of a very quick life to say, thank you for the God for the joy that I had in navigating life that I had never had before. And finally, you'll be able to say thank you for the power of the hope, the certain hope of eternal life. And in a moment, I'm going to invite you to talk to God and receive the grace that he offers to you. And I encourage you not to leave here without doing it. So I'm going to explain exactly what's going to happen so your eyes are wide open and you know what you're getting into. So what's going to happen is I'm going to ask everyone to bow their head and close their eyes. And if you want to receive Jesus Christ, if you've never begun a relationship with him like that, if you want to receive Christ, I'm going to invite you to raise your hand. I'll have my eyes open and a couple of the pastors will as well. And by raising your hand, you're saying yes to God, I'm in. I get it. I don't know if I totally get where I'm going with this, but I'm all in. I want this grace that you want to offer me. And I will pray a prayer 
slowly so that you can follow along with me. You can pray it silently between yourself and God, or I'd encourage you to pray it out loud. I'll tell you this, the people around you will be ecstatic. And all of the people in this room that already know Jesus as their Savior, I am asking you right now to be praying for the people that are considering if they should give their life to Christ. You have an important part to play. And we will pray together through that prayer. And then when you're done, I'm going to ask you to go and tell someone what God has done in your life. There'll be some people up front here. Some of the pastors will be milling around. You could tell the person that you came with. If you come up front here, we have gifts available. No obligation. You don't have to sign anything, stuff like that. It'll just be a Bible and some material that'll help you to be growing in your relationship with Jesus. But the reason I tell you it's important to tell someone, because it says in the Bible, when we acknowledge God before others, it helps, it helps solidify what God has done. And he wants us to tell others what he's done in our life. So I'm going to ask you to go and tell someone up front, one of the pastors, somebody that you came with. I heard about uh, the people that made this decision in the last service. And one of our Bible study leaders said that someone came and said, I prayed to receive Christ this morning. And you should have seen the tears in that guy's eyes. So I'm going to ask you to go and, and uh, tell somebody about that. And uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to lower the lights, the stage lights a bit so I can see better. And uh, I'm going to ask everybody to close their eyes and bow their head now. Everybody do that. And if you'd like to receive Christ in the way I've described it, just raise your hand. And you're doing this, you're saying to God, I want to receive Christ. Okay, I'm starting to see people with their hands up, several people. You can even look up at me if you want. Just keep your hand up so I can see. I'm just looking in the balcony. I see some people in the balcony. And now on the lower floor, I'm seeing several people. Okay, okay, that's good, all right, I see you, brother, yeah, okay, okay, good, okay. Let me pray with you, and you can follow along silently, or if you want to pray out loud, that's awesome, and the people of God that are here are praying for you right now, let's pray. God, you know about my cave, my brokenness, you know about my regret. You know about my sin. I'm tired of trying to handle the cave by myself. I admit that I've done sinful things. I ask now to live in the forgiveness and healing of what Jesus did for me on the cross and by rising from the dead. I invite Jesus to be my friend, my guide, my leader, and my Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.